Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a Valentine's, post-Valentine's Day. It's the day after. Special. We're recording this on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Charlie. Can you feel... Oh, sorry. No, that... Wrong hold one. On. My that, bad. A couple weeks. Sorry couple weeks. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> anyway, Andy just told us he got back from a, a Valentine's Day date with his wife. That's right. And was good. maybe at the dinner table, you were discussing Valentine's Day fun facts. Were you, Andy? Valentine's Day fun facts? I was not. That would Ooh. have been a great date idea, Charlie. Ooh, I wished we Tim, had talked. Tim, did you talk with your wife about Valentine's Day fun facts? No. Well, after this, you will be able to. So yeah. we're going to have a competition if we between... Re- <laughs> I, I can't be in the competition of romance because I'm not married. So I'm out of it. I'm uh, disqualified. But Andy and Tim are in the romance competition. And so we have so, seven seven fun facts about Valentine's Day. And we're going to see which one of you can do the best. Can I just concede? Listeners, no. we didn't know about this, Tim and I. Charlie said he's doing some weird opener. So well, that Okay, so... Question number one. Question number one. And there's actually a couple of ways you can answer it. So you will get a point if you give me a correct answer. We'll start with Andy. Andy, who was St. Valentine? Who was St. Valentine? <laughs> so I, I'm going to have to say that he's a saint in the Catholic Church, but I legitimately don't know, although just this morning one of my students was saying something about this in class, and I should have been listening. Tim, can you do better than a saint in the Catholic Church? I think he was Irish. He was taken captive by, I want to say Vikings. I'm probably off on a few things here. And then uh, he was liberated and then went back as a missionary to them or something like that. Isn't that St. Patrick? Oh, that's Patrick. That is St. Patrick. So we'll give the point to Andy. Uh, I Googled this, uh, and the answers that I found in the very first article I clicked on was that there's... It's actually a trick question. They're not 100% sure who Valentine's Day is based on, but there's a couple of options. Either a third century Roman Catholic priest who would marry people in secret under the ban of marriage by Emperor Claudius, and when they found out about it, he was killed. Or he was someone who helped Christians escape from Rome, but that answer didn't have a lot of context. So, Andy, point to you. Congratulations. Thank you. Tim, question two. What century, what century... Did it become associated, it, as the, the Valentine's Day holiday? In what century did it become associated with love? In what century did it come associated with the idea of romantic love? I'm going to go with the rom- romanticism movement. So I think that's the... Need a number. 19th century. Okay, 19th century. Andy, do you I'm want gonna... to go higher or lower? I'll just go for the 1800s. Yeah, so the correct answer is the 14th century... The 14th century. You're horrendous. <laughs> 19th century is the 18th. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> since he said a number that was closer to it, you said 19, he said 18. So we'll give the point to Andy. <laughs> That's awesome. So it is two to nothing. Uh, and yeah. uh, since you're down, we'll give Tim another question. When was the first yeah, written Valentine's sent? When was the first? This isn't necessarily historically accurate. It's the one that we have, the earliest one we have a record of earliest written valentine what century was that written in tim can you have a valentine before there was a valentine's day 
in a definition. I don't know. Whatever. Let's just let's go with the fifteen hundreds. The fifteen hundreds? Yeah. Why don't you pick a century? Oh, brother, the fifteenth century. It's the fifteenth century. Good job. Because oh. <laughs> wouldn't the fifteen hundreds technically be the sixteenth century? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I helped you out. That was nice. It was the French <laughs> medieval duke whose name was Charles. Good hey, name. That's a good name. Uh, that's the apparently the first one we have. So it's two to one. Two to one. Uh, we'll go back to Andy. What century did we get the tradition of flowers on Valentine's Day? What century did we get? I'm gonna say the 19th century. The 19th century. Tim, would you like to go higher or lower? I was thinking the 19th century as well, but I since I get a chance to pick a different one, let's go with the 20th 20th century. Ooh, that's a good pick, Tim, but it's wrong. Because flowers were added in the 17th century. So three to one, three to one. Now we're going to get to very modern times. So last three questions are going to have to do with how much money people spend on Valentine's Day gifts in America. I believe all of these statistics are drawn from 2019, but... uh, It won't matter. I don't know. So uh, Tim, actually, (laughs) we're going to start with Tim, and you're going to give me a number, and you have to give me a number in billions. Mm Mm-hmm. With a B, billions. I understand. How much did Americans spend on Valentine's Day gifts, very generic category, in 2019 in billions? Uh, I'm going to say $22 billion. $22 billion. Andy, would you like to go higher or lower? You just want me to say higher or lower? Well, you can pick a number, but, I mean, if you go one over, you'll be closer. Yeah. You go one lower, you'll be closer. I'll say lower. Lower. I was going to say $14 billion. Oh, okay. Actually, that is a valid thing that you say fourteen billion because mm-hmm. you could be farther away than yeah. Tim is farther away. Okay, so yeah, fourteen billion. Tim wins. Oh. It's twenty billion in twenty nineteen. Man, that's a lot. Three to yeah, a lot of money. That is crazy. How well, much did you just spend? Well, okay, <laughs> not not a billion. Not yeah. <laughs> so three to two. If you're keeping track at home, Tim is down by one. We'll, uh, we'll let Tim pick again on this one. So how much in, now this is in millions with an M, how much did they spend, Americans, in 2019 on Valentine's Day cards in millions? Uh, I'm going to say mm, $125 million. Andy, how many in millions? Wow. I'm... That much? No, I think it's a lot lower. I'm trying to do the math in my head, but you know, when you Tim got does 10 have seconds, a sort of a leg up because he's a know. bookstore manager. I'll just say a hundred million. I think it was going to think it's way high, but go for it. The correct answer is one hundred. Is it? And forty-five million dollars. Oh, so going into the last oh. question, we have a tie. So Mr. now, bookstore manager, the people who people really love the most, their pets. In 2019, we'll start. We'll, we'll go we'll start with Tim again. He he won the last one. We'll give him honors. How much in millions did Americans spend on their pets Valentine's Day in 2019? I'm gonna say 87 million. 87 million, Andy. I was gonna say 50 million because I thought that was an obscene number, but I guess Tim's already gone higher, so I'll still stick with it. I'll stick with 50. 50 million. The correct answer is 27.6 million. Oh. Andy is our Valentine's Day winner. Yeah. 
congratulations. Hey, you What's know what? my prize? While we're speaking about writing letters to people that we love. Okay. We are having a contest in the month of February where you could go over to Apple <laughs> and you could write us a nice love letter of a review. Five stars, write a little love letter review. You could say, this is the loveliest podcast I have ever listened to, obviously with a di- different context of the word love. Uh, and uh, by the end of February, everyone that's done that, starting like back in January where we announced it, we're going to draw names and give away prizes for that. So you can go... that. I just wanted a creative way of saying. Can I just say go let, leave us a review? That is the. I think that's this season's best segue, Charlie. That was so impressive. Speaking of writing letters to the people you I know, love, that was you so can good. write us a love letter in the form of an Apple Podcast review. So impressive. So okay, uh, eight minute, eight and a half minutes of nonsense. So now we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. I have 10 Choices Successful Couples Make by Ron Welch. Uh, He is a professor at Denver Seminary. And uh, this is published by Revel. It's a division of Baker Publishing Group, a Christian publisher. And uh, this is a good illustration of an integrationist uh, counseling uh, book. So he's he's trying to instruct couples on how to make good choices and 10 choices successful couples make. Um, and he talks about how marriage is about choices, so how you go about making decisions. Uh, I'm going to read just a couple of sections from here to try to illustrate this. Um, much effort has been put into researching how we make decisions. William Glasser created choice theory. The big idea here is that people are unhappy because they are in bad relationships, and their bad relationships are based on bad choices. He believes that when people learn to make better choices, their relationships improve and they become happier people. I believe this means that even the most challenging relationships could be improved if the couple made different choices. Well, you know, there's some truth to what he's saying here, right? Then he says, William Samuelson and Richard Zeckhauser wrote an article titled Status Quo Bias and Decision Making, and he goes on from there. I just want to interact with this a little bit. His sources of information are these three psychologists and so when you're reading through a book that's a Christian publishing book and they're consulting with psychologists, then, well, it might just, it not, not, might not necessarily be wrong, but it's like, where's the Bible, right? We've talked about that before on the podcast. Then he goes three ways to make choices, and he says you compromise, and he gives an illustration of a couple compromising. Number two, you trade off, like a couple, one wants to go to the beach, one wants to go to the mountains, and so they go one year to the beach, one year to the mountains. And then number three, uh, allow the person most affected by the decision to decide. So these are like three ways to make choices which are based upon secular psychology. And I'll just tell you that this is not the biblical model of making decisions. The idea of a biblical model of making decisions is a husband loving his wife sacrificially and serving her, and then a wife submitting to her husband. And we've had to live that in our marriage. And I could give you times and decisions that have had to be made where compromise, trade-off, and allow the person most affected to decide was not how we made decisions. Uh, And it worked out quite well. So um, I just want to caution you when you're reading through books and interacting with even Christian titles, scan through. If you don't see any Bible, that's a red flag. You might want to put it back on the shelf. And a book like this is hopefully not in the Faith Bookstore. We don't have this one. I know that because I was pretty... Suspicious that that's where this one was going to go. I can give you additional illustrations, but I've already gone for like three minutes, so I think I'm going to stop there. 
Do you have any desire to place a rating or a number on it? Oh, I was going to put this one on the shack stack. So <gasps> I will can say... Can you like go slap it over there? It's. Uh, I did get this book for free. It was a complimentary book from the publisher. But you can dump that thing Let me on describe to you. Stack. It's a purple book. Andy, he handed it off to Andy. And now Andy is going to slap it there. Oh, yeah. Bam. Right on that stack. And if you're wondering, you know, what is this integrationist? I hear him sometimes talk about this integrationist stuff. Well, this would be a good illustration of a book you could read and see what what that is like. And I want to just encourage you uh, when you're looking at schools, if you're potentially looking at going to Faith Baptist Bible College, that's a professor that's at Denver Seminary uh, that teaches, you know, the Bible. And they even say, I went to their website, firmly rooted in scripture and biblical faith. I mean, there's like no Bible in that book at all. And he's the guy that's their, their counselor. So pay attention to where you go to school and come to faith. Just for a biblical counseling clarification for the term integrationist, the idea is that they're trying to integrate secular psychology and the biblical counseling. But according to what Dr. Little just pointed out in any biblical counseling class, which one of those two things wins out, Tim? Yeah, the totally integrationist here. The authority is within the psychologist and there's like no Bible. I didn't see any Bible at all. I mean, he. I had one illustration where he's like, Oh, you know, a couple, this one guy, he wants to raise his kid according to what his mom had to say. Well, what his mom had to say. You know, when you're thinking through, well, man, I'm, and his wife had a problem with that, right? Hmm. Is there any Bible verse might be applicable? I know, that would be a good time for the Bible. Yeah, exactly. And I had a, I was going to baby. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't even go there. <laughs> like, he doesn't quote it. He doesn't cite it. He does. There's no Bible at all, even right through that. He's just going to psych, secular psychologists and they do a bunch of psychobabble junk on it so anyway okay uh my book which uh you've heard me mention before i think is very short fiction book by one of c.s lewis's friends called night operation by owen barfield uh i threw this up on my instagram on my like story where i'm tracking the books i'm finishing throughout the year and then after i posted it and i realized you know i should make a disclaimer on this there's some very um worthy material to be maybe censored by a parent here uh, in this book. And so just don't, even a college student, I wouldn't just recommend off cuff that you go read it. But here, let me describe it quickly, and then I'll give a, a rating to it. 65 pages, very short. Imagine the, the same culture of Lewis's hideous strength only in the 22nd century. So fast forward a couple hundred years of that same thinking think third chapter of the abolition of man and what they've done is they've humanity has gone un, underground to live in the sewers out of fear of uh nuclear warfare or um, uh biochemical warfare and so now these generations of kids don't even know what is up there and along with going underground for fear of war there's this complete revolution of the educational system where these kids don't know what words mean Education isn't about communication of ideas. Real education is you being able to enjoy things. It calls them the three E's, the three excretions. So you can maybe uh, understand where he takes that. Uh, very physically minded. This content has been redacted. Yeah. And so, <laughs> but it is an interesting imaginative play on Lewis's same idea, only a couple more, a couple hundred more years in the future. And eventually these three friends start reading books. They start under, trying to figure out the meanings of words and then eventually like journey up to the above ground land. And so it's interesting. In the end, it's just kind of peddling uh, 
Barfield's ideas of perception and how psychology is communicated historically in the words that people use. So, again, you know, without knowing his background there, like everything he talks about in Saving the Appearances and Poetic Diction, this is an imaginative take on it uh, in, in, in form with how the Inklings did things. So I'll give it a low rating, like a three or a four. It's imaginatively fun. The ideas that he's trying to promote aren't probably lasting like huge, great ideas. But if you're really into that like dystopian future, I don't even know if that's the right word for it, but if you're really into that type of thing, you might be interested in this read, but be advised there's some high level, high moral uh, things that will be just thrown around at times. So yeah, three or four, night operation on Barfield. Very nice. Okay, I talked about my book already once, so today I'm going to, I finished it this weekend, I'm going to give it a rating. It's Surprised by Oxford, a memoir, and it's by Carolyn Weber. It immediately piqued my interest because it sounded like Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, and a lot of that takes place at Oxford. So <clears throat> I probably picked this up, oh, I don't know, two or three years ago on e gospel, or on, on Kindle for super cheap, and I, I had tried to make it through a couple of times, and it wasn't what I expected, and I had forgotten this. I went to go leave an, leave an Amazon review, and I had like two-starred the book like three years ago and didn't realize it, and I said, it's supposed to be this, but it's that. So here's what I would say. I actually really enjoyed it by the time I got done. It's not what you think. If you have C.S. Lewis's Surprise by Join Your Mind and you go to read this, it's not going to be the same kind of thing. It's a combination of a life memoir and an apologetics discussion where the main character goes to Oxford as an unbeliever and then her life happens. And, it, and I don't want to give too much away, but there's the transitions and all this in her life. And it was good. There was a lot of times where the main character is debating Christianity with various people in the book, and the Christians have thoughtful answers. And, and this, again, it's something that um, is shocking and interesting for her. Like, she's not expecting that. And just as dabbling or actually doing a lot in apologetics myself, that's a pretty common discussion that people think Christians don't have anything to say, and then they meet a Christian who has answers and knows their Bible and can ask difficult or penetrating questions to the other position that gets people thinking. So it was really good on that angle. Then there's a whole other story, which is just her life that year at Oxford. Um, and it's pretty interesting. So I'm going to give this a six on the Thinkling's goodness scale, which I also noted in my Amazon review that I gave it a six on the goodness. So who knows? Anyone reads it on Amazon? Repping the brand. There you go. <laughs> I will say this. <laughs> um, you've got to, you got to like lower your expectations and then go into it understanding like you're not sure what you're getting. Uh, but it was really good. I really, I really enjoyed it. I feel like there was something I was going to say about it and I'm forgetting it now because I didn't have my notes, but um, I would, I liked it. I would recommend it. Well, this it is good. the time of the podcast where Theoden recognizes That's the beginning true. of the war. We need to be done. Yep. Cause remember we're trimming, we're trying to trim up some poundage for 2022. So, so in, in this like episode, I'll be talking yeah. about <laughs> ideal intimacy from song three, six to five, one. We're talking about weddings and how weddings are important. In fact, a biblical um, pattern is in the song of a wedding. And then even uh, the honeymoon and the uh, song of songs chapter four. So it's just like, Hey, you know what? God created intimacy. There's this blueprint, this order of creation with intimacy 
And he gives us a, a picture of that in song 3-6 to 5-1. Let's have a conversation about the Song of Songs. Here we are the day after Valentine's Day, and so love is in the air. Well, what, what is love? In the Song of Songs, we have the way love's supposed to be. We have love with problems, and we have love with resolution of problems. In the, in the center of the book, in Song of Songs chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1, you have the way love is supposed to be. You have the beginning with a marriage, and then you have intimacy and desire in Song of Songs chapter 4. Uh, the chapter divisions in the Song of Songs, you basically just need to completely disregard. Uh, some of them catch minor breaks within the, the book, but none of them really catch the major division points of the book of the Song of Songs, which is why this passage actually begins at chapter 3, verse 6, and extends through chapter 5, verse 1, which is kind of funny because the... the um, the edit, well, whoever that guy was that put the chapter divisions in, he was only one verse off, you know? If he had just gone to chapter 5, verse 2, he would have had it right. All right, so what do we have in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, but a wedding? I'm going to just go ahead and read through this section of scripture. Who is this coming out of the wilderness, like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant, war valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh, because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. And so here you have the beginning. This is the order of creation. It is wisdom. And what do you have but a wedding? And this was kind of uh, contemplative for me as I considered the song and the role of a wedding uh, in relation to intimacy. And of course, as... Um, Biblical theologians, obviously, we could see the purpose of a wedding in the Song of Songs, because that is the time that God has ordained that intimacy would begin. In this wedding, though, we have a, a great deal of extravagance. And I don't know about you, but you see all of the money spent at a wedding and all of the adornments and so on and so forth. For what? For one day, for a few hours. And Many begin to wonder, is it really worth it? Well, in Song 3, 6 through 11, you have the wedding of weddings. I mean, this thing is like the biggest wedding ever. I mean, it looks like smoke billowing up as this, as this entourage comes. But it's not smoke as in their burning waste wood. It's smoke as in their burning, burning spices, the frankincense and the myrrh. I mean, this is extremely extravagant with these uh, smells. And so this is the wedding of all weddings. It's like huge. So we have that component, the smells of the wedding. Then you have the security. You have the 60 valiant men around it uh, who are there for protection. Uh, the one in this carriage that's coming, some believe it's Solomon. Others believe that it's his bride, one of his brides, maybe his first bride, 
Um, it is Solomon's wedding. It states that in verse 11. And uh, personally, I believe it is the bride. She is coming in the carriage to Solomon on this wedding day, maybe his first wedding day. And she, so you have the smells and the, the, the security there. And then you have this, this elaborate description of this bed, this seat of the wood of Lebanon, okay? He made this palanquin, which was something that was carried, you know, or it was this big seat and very wealthy people would be escorted around and, and in this seat. And this was very elaborate. And he goes through all this description of it. It's pillars of silver, support of gold, it's seat of purple, interior paved with love. And as I was reflecting upon the Song of Songs, and as I was reflecting upon the application of this passage, one of the things that made me consider is that, you know what, a wedding is a big deal. And it is appropriate and right to uh, use the blessings which God has blessed you with in proportion uh, to enjoy that day. And as we're in February, and no doubt there are several brides that are looking forward to, and grooms, looking forward to their wedding and all the preparations that they're involved in, I see this as the order of creation. This is the way it's supposed to be, is that that's a big day, and you should enjoy that day as the big day that it is. And it's okay to be extravagant for just even a few hours on one day. Uh, there's the union of a man and a woman, and they're becoming a new family unit. And that celebration should be celebrated in proportion with the measure which God has blessed you. And so that was a biblical theological principle that I kind of uh, pulled from Song 3, 6 through 11. Then in chapter 4, you have uh, the, the wedding chamber. Understand their weddings were done differently. I'm not going to go through that right now, but this is the union of husband and wife. And what does the husband do in chapter 4, verse 1? Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. The word fair there is beautiful. He's basically saying, look, you are beautiful, my love. Look, you are beautiful. I mean, she's a knockout. And then he goes through and describes all of the ways in which she is beautiful in verses 2 through 6. Then in verse 7, he states again, you are all beautiful, my love, and there is no spot in you. And this is a bride being, being uh, presented to uh, her husband. And just like we do in today's culture, the bride, it is her day where she adorns herself and beautifies herself for her new groom. And this groom exalts in his bride's beauty on this special day. I'm not going to go through all of the exegesis and explanation of verses 1 through, uh, one through 6. Uh, in sum, she, she is beautiful and he exalts in the beauty that God has blessed her. In verse 8, uh, he, he, uh, there's some distance, okay? There's some distance that's created in Song 4, verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards. These are interesting descriptions. She is at the top of the mountains. Now, within the song, you have love as being a place of gardens, not tops of the mountains. So she's at the top of the mountain is, is not really a good thing. In fact, he entreats her to come, and uh, he entreats her to, 
to come down uh, from the tops of the mountains. Furthermore, she's in a specific location. She's in the lion's dens. She's in the mountains of the leopards. Look at the combination there of these ferocious animals, leopards and lions, with the mountains in the distance. And the, the, the husband here, filled with desire for his new bride, uh, this day of the gladness of his heart, as Song 311 describes it, he desires his bride, but uh, she seems a little bit more hesitant. And it's kind of interesting to contemplate ancient cultures and how weddings were done and how marriages would have been arranged. A little more hesitation there on the part of the bride would be rather, shall we say, understandable. Uh, even in today's culture, young men could learn a few lessons from the principle that we learn here in Song 4, and that, especially on that wedding night, the bride is sometimes a little more hesitant. Um, here, this this groom is excited. This is the day of the gladness of his heart. But now this bride, his bride, is up on the mountains. She's in the den of the lions. And he doesn't go charging into the den of the lions. If he does that, then, well, there's a lion there. So instead, what does he do? In verses 9 through 11, he speaks to her. And he, has, he describes his affection and his love for her. In verse 9, he states, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. The link of the necklace is probably like maybe a wink. It's kind of fascinating to consider the power of the eyes to arouse, to excite. And here, she probably winks at him. And just that one wink, it could be a glance at well, as well, or just that one little glance what does it do? It hearts him. You have hearted my heart, is technically what you have there. And he is excited for her. And he tells her about that excitement in Song 4-9. Uh, intimacy, according to, to the order of creation, the way God designed it, is a sensuous experience. It is not simply a visual experience. It is not simply a, a touching experience. It is a sensuous experience, and that it involves, is supposed to involve, according to the order of creation, all of the senses. And here we have the sense of hearing. He is speaking to her, and so he appeals to the hearing. He appeals to the sight. She is beautiful. So we have the hearing. We have the seeing. And then look in, ver in verse 10, we continue. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. So here we have the sense of smell. As I think through the order of creation and intimacy the way God designed it, and as we see our world and how broken they've presented intimacy, and how they've really failed in presenting intimacy according to the way God designed it, and that it has become really not that sensuous of an experience. Here, all of the senses are in play, and, and the, the groom exalts in his wife in all of the senses as the two become one. So we have the sense of smell, and then we have the sense of taste. In verse 11, your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. 
Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So we have the hearing, we have the sight, we have the smell, the taste, and then finally in verses 12 through 15, we would have, well, really 12 through chapter 5 verse 1, we have the sense of touch. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And so here the woman is no longer on the top of the mountains. She's no longer in the den of the lions or the leopards. Rather, she is a luxurious garden, and she desires the affection of her husband, her groom, just as he desires her affection. So you can see how this text, it kind of um, uh, transitions his desire in verses 1 through 7 and then her distance in verse 8, but then the escalation of her desire, culminating in verses twelve, chapter 4, verse 12 through 5.1. So this garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. By the way, the sister, some of you might be like, what the world's up with that? Well, that was a term of endearment that they had back in those days. Obviously, it doesn't apply today, but um, I don't call my wife sister. Nope. Uh, she's wife. Okay, spouse. All right. Um, but that was a term of endearment back in those days. Okay, verse 13, your plant, chapter 4, verse 13, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. It's kind of interesting. I had this Hebrew grammar student one time, and Hebrew grammar students get to pick their own names. And they have to have a name, though, that if they have a Hebrew name, then it apply, that, that is their name. You know, if your name is Jacob, your name is Yaakov. But if they don't have a Hebrew name, then they can pick whatever name that they want. And I had this one student that was very influenced by a TV show called The Office. And there was this one character, Nard Dog. And this character was... I don't know, particularly endearing to this one student for some reason. And so this student wanted to be named Nard, and they found Nard in the Bible. They actually found it right here in Song of Songs, chapter 4. Isn't that just striking, funny? You know, Tim, I had a very similar experience in Greek class. Of, I think another student did that, but they found the Greek word for Nard. Huh. That's a quite endearing student. We love that student, and uh, we still love that student. But uh, irony of ironies, in my opinion, because this very erotic section of the Song of Songs is the location from which they chose their name. So spikenard, at the end of verse 13, fragrant henna with spikenard. That's the word. And, and in Hebrew, the word is literally nard. That's it. Um, so you have this garden this enclosed garden, this spring shut up, this fountain sealed. And these metaphors illustrate the purity of the marriage bed. This woman is inaccessible, inaccessible to all. And after her wedding night, she is accessible, accessible to only one. And who is this one? We have the description in Song 416. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden. The speaker has changed. The wife now speaks, and she says to blow upon her garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden. Her garden is no longer hers, but actually his. 
and she states in the last line, and eat its pleasant fruits. The sexual delights offered by the wife are at this time available to the husband, and he does not take, but they are given to him. And he eats and drinks freely. And this is the way God designed it. This is the order of creation. In Song of Songs, chapter 5 and verse 1, the man speaks again, the husband speaks again, and he says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. He exults in the pleasure that his garden offers him. He's content with it and enjoys it as truly a gift from God according to the order of creation. Now, when we think of purity and marriage and intimacy, a lot of times we get a little bit, oh, this is a little weird. I can't believe you guys are talking about this. I don't know. I don't really have a problem with it. Maybe it's just because I've taught the song so much and, um, well, it's in the Bible. All he did was read the text. But it's also interesting how when couples are struggling with purity before marriage, or there is impurity before marriage, or outside of marriage in any straight way, shape, or form, it's almost like we're trying to hide it from God, that God does not see it. But God is the omnipresent one. He's everywhere, and he knows all. We can hide nothing from him. But then within the marriage bed, people are like, ooh, you know, is God really okay with this? And it can be like, awkward or whatever, like we're doing something wrong or whatever. But but actually, God chimes in here in Song of Songs chapter 5 and verse 1. The speaker changes at the end of chapter 5, or at the end of verse 1. Kind of fascinating to think, the omnipresent, omniscient God, does he see what's going on in a married, in a marital marriage bed? Well, he knows what's going on. And for crying out loud, he's the one that created it. He's the one that made it this way. He is the author of wisdom, okay? He's the author of the order of creation. He doesn't have any problem with it. In fact, what does he have to say about it? What does it say in Song 5.1? What does he say? He says, eat, oh friends. Do you see that, friends? That's a plural. It's not just eat, oh man. No, it's eat, both of you. Consume, eat, oh friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply. O beloved ones. And that last verb there, to drink deeply, kind of an interesting word. I'm going to make another hit on another student that chose a Hebrew, uh, actually, this is just a Greek name. They didn't take Hebrew, but they were a coffee drinker and they wanted some kind of a verb for like the strong drink. And so they're like, oh, sakar. It's like sakar or something like that. I think it was Sicaria. Sicaria? Yeah, Sicaria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I heard the student saying their name, Sicaria. Yeah, it's a strong drink. I like strong coffee. I'm like, oh, okay. I think that derives from like Sakar in Hebrew, which means to be drunk, like beer or wine or, you know, <laughs> intoxicated. <laughs> So the student knew that ahead of time. They did know that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, they were okay. looking for the only parallel. Was that like, was as close okay. as they could get? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so be it. That's fine. That's the word that you actually have here in Song 5.1. 
when it, God speaks, he says, eat, oh friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply. That's a nice way of saying it, really. It's basically saying be drunk, be intoxicated. And it's kind of an interesting, uh, in a biblical sense, wordplay. You have divine drunkenness, where God says, be drunk. And this is the area where intoxication and being inebriated and 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 letting go actually is a good thing. In fact, it's the way it's supposed to be. It's the order of creation. So as we think through intimacy and you know, Valentine's Day was yesterday. I thought it would be appropriate to see, you know what, what is the order of creation? How did God make the world as it connects to this whole idea of intimacy? Well, here it is. I truly think that too often we go to the problems and the immorality. and Instead, what does God do in the Song of Songs? He says, you know what, I think it might help you out just to know that this is the way it's supposed to be. And so even in the midst of brokenness and, and sin and, and uh, some really bad situations that some of our listeners might be going through, you know what? You may not like intimacy. Maybe it's a gift that God gave that you'd rather return and not have any part of. Well, this is the way it's supposed to be. And I'm sorry for your brokenness and the pain that you may be going through when it comes to intimacy. But if you're married, I pray that you would pursue this gift as a gift from God. And if, if you need some assistance with your spouse, go to your pastor. The church is what God has established as a place for healing in this area. And I pray that you would be able to enjoy this gift as a gift from God in the way that it's described here in Song 3.6 to 5.1. And as a lot of our students are, are students and single, I would encourage you to think through intimacy as this is the way that God designed it. And when you see all of these advertisements and perversions and junk all over the place saying, this is the best, no, it's not, okay? Right here, Song 3-6-5-1, that's the best. And it leads to drunkenness. Okay, guys, there we go. So what do you guys think about that? Well, I don't know that I have a lot of comments. I did have one thought. So this is the presentation of what is it supposed to be like. And in our culture today, we're not presented with this. And it's intriguing. So I'm thinking of the younger uh, who are listening and those who may not be uh, married yet, but even those who are married, that if you... If you buy what the world's selling, Tim, like you're talking about, you're going to develop a taste for that. You're going to assume that's the best. And then that's going to like, it's going to affect everything in the future. So I suppose it's almost like if you're raised uh, and all you eat is uh, processed foods and, and, and uh, junk food every day. And then someone says, here's a healthy diet. You're, you're not going to like that healthy diet. You might think it's weird. You might miss what you had, but it's actually... It's that you're, you've been trained, you've, you've trained yourself in some sense to like uh, what is 
is not good. And so what's good about what you're presenting from the Bible is that maybe you're not married and this is not the time for you. It's good for you to see a picture of what is right and set your mind on that. Well, no, not like that, but to, to say this is what's good. And then like Proverbs says, to distinguish the good from the evil, from the right, from the wrong. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that. Yeah, within uh, a grocery store, um, of course, you know, the pro- proliferation of immorality online, um, understanding what the order of creation is, when you see something that's not according to the order of creation, what should you do? That's a lie. And when there's a desire for it, you need to identify what that desire is. That is not a godly desire. That is a sinful desire. You need to mortify it and draw close to the Lord. For married people, you're in the grocery aisle and, you know, some horrendous magazine saying that, oh, this is going to be fulfilling and these blah, 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 blah. We'll just leave it at that. Is that the order? Is that the way God designed it? Or are they just feeding upon your discontent? And when they're feeding on your discontent with the intimacy that you do have, then what does that do? It destroys the intimacy that God designed for you to experience. So being content. um, Being content with the intimacy, the order of creation, and the way God designed it is the way to truly enjoy intimacy the way that God designed it. Good. Just to clarify, the Greek uh, term nardu is found in Mark chapter 14, verse 3. And that is where the Greek student drew the name from. And you disallowed that Greek student from using it and in Hebrew. And uh, that student persisted in writing Nardu in Hebrew script on his quizzes. <laughs> That's a really in- resourceful student. I would say so. And, and you know what? His name ended up being? Nardu. Nardu. <laughs> I mean, even when the professor said it, that can't be a name because it's not a name. It's a smell. <laughs> That student continues. It's in the Bible. All year long. <laughs> it's in the Bible. Nardu. It's in the Bible. On their quizzes and on their tests and then in exegesis and then in Aramaic. And so that student is known as. It's also in John chapter 12. Nardu. And, and Song of Solomon, as we've noted. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Any other, what do you think about that? Or are we good to go here? Nope. Got a closing thought? That was beautiful. I loved that ending right there. Nardu. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.